0: Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is John Keeley, and this is the 475th show of ROI. Our guest for today's show is Enfis McMurray, local historian and author, who is going to talk to us about the Continental Flight 11. Joining us for the second segment of our show will be our history buffs, Rick Sweet and Jay Sword. Uh, To begin with, we would like to uh, welcome back our guest, Infus. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing fine. It's good to be with you
0: well, we appreciate you coming back, and you're actually starting off what we would probably call the beginning of the semester. Uh, yes, and we...
1: congratulations <laughs> on having a new season.
0: Yes, it is. It is always great fun. We call this segment Farukh Naran, and our goal is to give our listeners a little background on today's subject. So, can you start us off with some basic information on the Continental Flight 11?
1: Yes. Uh, Continental Flight 11 is the first bombing of a jet passenger airliner anywhere in the world. It's also the first suicide bombing of any passenger airliner. I'm saying in the world, I'm not sure about those last three words, but I'm pretty sure so. Um, I think that there certainly were bombings previously to this flight. Um, There was a particular one over Colorado about, five or six years before Continental Flight 11. What makes Continental Flight 11 so significant is that it's a jet airliner and a super luxury one. And there were, of course, passengers on board and a crew. There were uh, a number of passengers and, and a crew of eight. And also, the fact that this story has never been told. And I think the reason it's never been told is what probably would come much later in the interview, which is 12 days after Continental Flight 11 happened, um, another jet airliner, luxury jet airliner, crashed in Orly Airport in France, in Paris. And of the people on board, 130 of the people on board... A hundred and six of them were from Atlanta, Georgia. They were extremely wealthy art patrons. And all of a sudden, uh, this became flyover country again, where Flight 11 had happened. The Flight 11 was flying on May the 22nd, 1962. It was flying from Chicago O'Hare to Los Angeles. It had a stop in Kansas City. Um, when they were into the flight, probably only about an hour into the flight, one of the people on board, and of course, this wasn't known at the time. It was discovered in investigations that came later with the FBI and the CAB. Um, but a gentleman on board had taken a it, he had six sticks of dynamite and he went to the rear restroom and exploded them there. Um, the result, the, the actual explosion went off over Lake Wapalo in Davis County, which is about um, 30 miles away from Sanderville, Iowa. And when the bomb went off, absolutely no one. There was total lack of contact with it. Um, the people who were tracking the, the flight, um, and it was a, a crew seven eighty eight at Waverley, north of of Waterloo, that were actually tracking the flight, uh, lost all contact, and the flight was about to be transferred over to the um, P, the the radar receivers who were in Kansas City. Um, so both these two people had not a clue where the flight was except a rough notion of where it was. And somewhere in the vicinity of Centerville, Iowa, there was no contact with the plane at all. It just disappeared. Um, it happened over Lake Guapalo and it happened at 9.17 and 7 seconds at night. So it was dark And the only way anyone knew where the plane could possibly be was by following a trail of debris, which the plane was dropping as it was disintegrating. And there was 40 miles from the actual bomb site or where the bomb had gone off, not the bomb site, where the bomb had gone off of Lake Wapolo. There were 40 miles of debris and still no one knew this was right, right across the country. And then bit by bit, the story came to light when um, a lovely man from Seneville, by the name of Leo Craver, he and his wife and good friends had been eating a meal in Unionville, Missouri, which is uh, across the border in the state of Missouri. And they'd been having a meal there. There'd been storms all day. They were having a meal there, and it says they were driving back up Highway 5, which, just to make life complicated for a writer, it was then known as Iowa Highway 60. But it's now known as 5 all the way. And as they reached the turnoff to one little community— Um, Leo, in the dark, the headlights of his car, had begun to pick up what looked like bits of isolated debris. And then right in the middle of the road was a large piece of metal. And it was three feet. I've interviewed Leo several times. Wonderful guy. And it was three feet in length and six inches wide. It was gray on one side and green on the other. Uh, Leo was a Second World War veteran of the Army U.S. Air Force. Um, He had been stationed at the Panama Canal watching, of course, for both U.S. and Japanese air flights, both of which had got into trouble. So he was fairly familiar. He was also in the medical section of it. So he thought this is interesting. Other cars were driving around it, but he got out. And with his partner, Jack Morris, um, his good friend Jack Morris, the two of them lifted up the piece of metal and inspected it in the headlights of their car. And I said to Leo, how did you know it was from an aircraft? And he thought a while and he said, the rivets. When I ran my fingers over the rivets on that piece of metal, he said, I knew it was from an aircraft. That was my experience in the Second World War. So they bring that piece up to Seneville to the police station, and they show it to the sheriff of Appanoose County, whose name was Paul Thomas, who trusted Leo so much. and Leo was in his posse, and he said, let's go back to the spot where you found it. When they went back to the place where they found it, there was still absolutely no national news that this plane was missing. When they went back to that site, they found all kinds of people out. Okay. Uh, they were almost like fireflies on the, each side of the road in the dark picking up pieces. I'm sure. And okay. That was the first knowledge, really, that something had happened.
0: Okay. Thanks. That is incredibly informative. Um, we have a lot more to talk about, so please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM.
2: If you are wondering how to find out where locals love to go, there's a website called LocalsLoveUs.com. Or you can pick up a Locals Love Us guide around town as well. LocalsLoveUs.com. Hello and welcome back to ROI,
0: Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is John Keeley, and this is sec- this is the second segment of the show referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today is Miss Envis McMurray, local historian and author, and we're talking about the crash of the Continental Flight 11. Our history buffs for today's show are Rick Sweet and Jay Swords. Rick, as a former resident of Centerville, why don't you start us off? Okay, I'd be happy to.
3: Envis, uh, you and I talked earlier about, uh, before you decided to join us, uh, thankfully, once again, my father was involved, uh, uh, got a phone call from the sheriff to, uh, uh, if they could use his station wagon. And they were calling all the people within about, I think, about a 40, 50-mile radius who had station wagons to transport what uh, dad told me was debris from an airplane crash and uh, when we went out I was uh, quickly aware that aircraft debris doesn't uh, exist in black bags that they loaded into the back of our of our station wagon and I think we went to, I think we went to Unionville or someplace where they had set up a morgue is is, is my memory faded on that or is that that's, that, that's
1: accurate. In fact, um, it took hours and hours for for the disc- the people from from Senneville turned out by the hundreds, and at their lead, as well as the sheriff, was Doc Eugene Ritter. Now, Ritter's background couldn't have been better for such an experience in the Second World War. He was stationed. He he was already a surgeon when he was called up to go to the Second World War. He was stationed out in the Pacific on New Guinea, and he performed surgeries, emergency surgeries under palm trees, with a Hollywood actor by the name of Lou Ayres, and also. Uh, Doc Ritter became head of the battalion, the 54th Battalion, the largest U.S. Army hospital outside the continental U.S. Um, So he was extremely experienced, and the FAA already had him as one of their local examiners, should there be an aircraft. But he was a personality. I never met him, but when I've asked people his personality, they say, well, he didn't suffer fools. It was his way or the highway. When he eventually they found where these these people were, where the uh, all of them were dead except one. And he was moaning inside the aircraft. They found it about three miles south of the Iowa, Missouri border, about six miles northwest of Unionville, Missouri. And it was on a piece of land, completely isolated in a way. Uh, It was found by 17 year old Ronnie Cook. And he found it about two or three in the morning and then alerted people to come in and to help. Um, the tail section was completely gone. A w- whole wing was completely gone. And people have told me, Al Clark, that worked for the Seneville Fire Rescue Station, he said, we turned our headlights right into that tail section so that Doc Ritter could go in. Now, Doc Ritter brings out, with the help, of course, the young man. His name was Takahito Nakano. He was a young Japanese engineer. And they brought him out to send him up to Centerville for the hospital. And it's exactly at that moment that the Unionville, Missouri doctor, Dr. Charles Judd, turned up. I interviewed Dr. Charles Judd and he said I turned up not knowing, you know, that it was a huge airliner with all these 37 passengers aboard and a crew of eight. He said, I thought I was just going up to a small aircraft. But when he got there, he could see that the bodies were going to be removed and there were already morticians in place from Centerville because they no, no one in Missouri yet knew that there was this crash. Iowa was informed way ahead. So as they were moving the bodies to the ambulances, Dr. Judd steps forward and says to Ritter, you take those bodies across the state line and you're in trouble. So a very nasty little situation now begins to develop. And Richard said, come on, we got a morgue ready in Seneville. You just turned up. You don't have a morgue ready. Why don't we just take the bodies across the state line? And the sheriff, David Fowler, steps forward and looks at Doc Richard and he said, I'll shoot your tires out. <laughs> so immediately, Dr. Judd, I said, how did you solve it? He said, I got hold of the attorney general of Missouri. And you probably know his name. His name was Thomas Eagleton. And it's, he was only 32, a rising star in the Democratic Party. He it, it was 10 years away from when he would have to withdraw from being the vice presidential nomination to McGovern. So um, he had a discussion with Dr. Judd, and the solution was the body stayed in Missouri. So the morgue that you're talking about, Rick, had to quickly be established in, in Unionville, Missouri. Um, Dr. Judd had to take care of that immediately, and of course all the good people in Unionville, as soon as they knew the situation, they came out and helped establish, and that's where the morgue was the whole time. And that's where your father and you were going with that station wagon, with body bags that had been brought in from Chicago to La Plata uh, Railroad Station.
3: Jay, you got a question. I do. I'm just um, curious, in hindsight, uh, it's amazing to me that anybody survived, first of all. But in in hindsight, do we have uh, a sense, as things were reconstructed, you know, we we lost a tail section, obviously from the beginning. Yes. Um, and you know, then so as it fell apart, I, I guess I'm. I hope I don't sound morbid, but I'm. I'm really desperately hoping that most of those folks were dead well before they hit the ground.
1: Well, they appeared to be. I don't think anyone knew for sure, but the explosion on board must have been so dramatic that a lot of medical experts think yes they were immediately killed, but the, but the crew were not. And the uh, pilot, the co-pilot, and the, the, second, pi- the second pilot were um, almost still alive until they hit the ground. Uh, they were desperately trying to save. There's a lovely story about the captain at his funeral out in Colorado and Captain Gray, Fred Gray, 51 years old, superb pilot, and um, the person giving the eulogy said if anybody could land that plane without, a, without one wing and without a tail, it would have been Fred Gray. Okay. Um, the one young man who survived briefly, he, he lived, of course, he survived right through the night because 9.17, seven seconds is when the bomb went off. He was lying incidentally across three seats horizontally. That might have helped him. Um, everybody else on board, the people that I've interviewed that went, a lot, lot of National Guardsmen were called in to go in and assist with the bodies. And they said the people were pitched forward and had collided with the seat ahead. And they described the bodies to me as limp to, when they tried to extract them. Um, the young man who survived briefly, Takahito Nakano, was taken up to Centerville to St Joseph Hospital, and of course his his health conditions were dire because of internal injuries. Uh, Dr Officer, that Rick will remember, I think, Dr Officer. Um, waited on him, along with a Dr. Larson and a Sister Mary Owens, because it's a Catholic hospital. Um, Sister Mary Owens was terribly concerned, as Takahiko was approaching death, that he wasn't a Christian. And uh, she administered the final rites and gave him absolution so that uh, it was comfortable. At any rate, that would be the policy of the hospital, people tell me.
3: Uh, could
0: you give our listeners um, a little bit more about the uh, motif? Why was this flight chosen, and the people behind causing the explosion?
1: Yes, the FBI. Assumed, by the way, in charge of the FBI was Mark Felt, and you know him better as Deep Throat of the Watergate scandal. Yep. Uh, Mark Felt was head of the FBI in Kansas City. He flew in, and was in charge of the investigation processes. But previously, his entire job was to identify the bodies. It's only as the FBI were literally crawling on their hands and knees across the actual impact site, that they were picking up pieces of evidence. And the head of the FBI, CAB, the Civil Air Non-Export, it doesn't exist anymore, but it, that was the investigative group then. And the main investigative researcher was a man by the name of George Van Epps. Um, the articles say no one in the United States knew more about 707s and how they operated than George Van Epps. He and his PR assistant, they were very close friends and worked together, was a man called Edward Slattery and they both stayed in the Continental Hotel. In came the World Press, everything, staying in Senneville because of course, Unionville is a much, much smaller community. The hotels and everything were there. And as the FBI were picking up the pieces of of evidence, one one of the things they they picked up was a tiny little piece of waxy, uh, browny, black, browny, more of a tan beige color, a piece of paper, quite small. And they looked at each other, and I missed it as I'm reading all the articles, and then only later did I understand that it's part of the wrapping around dynamite. It was brown, it was waxy brown, and um, they realized what it was, plus the fact that seven bodies that were in the tail section had fallen out, and they were spaced like three and a half miles away from the actual crash site. And one of them, it's only when they started counting all the bodies in the morgue in Unionville, they realized one was missing. And she was found two and a half days later. And when her body was flown down to Odessa, Texas, which was her hometown, the FBI realized that there had to be more work done on her body. But they wanted to sort of assist the families, you know, getting the bodies back. So U.S. um, doctors flew down to Odessa. They x-rayed her body in the funeral home. They found that she had metal particles in her body and furthermore a mark on her arm. And when they went to examine the mark that was on her arm, they drew out another little piece of paper that was waxy and beigey brown with black lettering on it. So, of course, now then Mark felt role changes. His role changes from being um, giving the names and identifying all the victims to immediately finding out who did it. And that's a long process. Tell me if I'm going on and you want me to wait a minute.
3: <laughs> uh,
0: well, uh, not, not a problem. Rick, do you have a question for to go with this
3: conclusion? Well, yeah, I, I would like to uh, know what was the motive of the bomber. Was it an insurance well, claim?
1: Y- yes, it was pure money. Now, he's a very interesting character. He was a graduate student uh, with an excellent academic record from the University of Missouri. Um, As I begin to analyze him as a personality that led him to this desperate act, when he was a young man, he was identified at the age of 16 as being a severe diabetic. He never treated it right. His parents, by the way, were Christian scientists. Therefore, um, I'm not sure how well they covered science in in their house. He never treated his diabetic. He would go into comas. He would pass out. He would look off into space. But he was determined to be a millionaire. He'd established a, a factory in Kansas City. It was for different type of burial vaults. And he told everyone, you know, before I'm 40, I'll be a millionaire. So there was, but he was highly literate. He could recite pages of Shakespeare nonstop. And um, and he married, and he had a child, and his wife was pregnant on the second child. But then fire broke out at his burial vaults, and the insurance companies began to question the authenticity of the fire. And it seems you could almost date it. You could see this whirl down in this man 's life as he was deteriorating, sinking into what obviously was depressions. Then he was arrested on the streets of Kansas City. Um, uh, the police said he was spacing off as they asked him questions. A woman accused him of having broken into her car and stealing her purse. But also the FBI said that particular woman was so drunk she hardly could make a sentence make sense. So it's all a little mysterious, but... The critical thing came, and it was, you see, see when I'm reading, the FBI sent me 800 pages, and they're heavily redacted. So you find an interview with somebody, you don't know who the person is. You know who the FBI agent is, but you don't know who the person is. And then a lot of the key information they reveal is redacted and but slowly what emerges is i mean the fbi agents were everywhere in kansas city looking into his career looking into interviews with the doctors with his friends with the the bars where he would take time off sometimes he wasn't an alcoholic but he did drink occasionally um so they put this whole story together and you can see a deterioration of a human being just spiraling downwards And um, he applied to a new job. He lost his job. There were complaints that he was approaching women. Um, And then he clearly has a passion. No one could put this together until uh, after the FBI final report comes out and some of the words of his wife are revealed. The wife was highly cooperative. She was saying um, that I could see the deterioration in my husband. And when he came home after that arrest, which occurred just a month before the bomb went off on the flight, and he this, came and home. And this, uh, yes. what
3: was his name? What was
1: oh, his name? Thomas... Gene Doty, D-O-T-Y. Okay. Tom Doty is what he was known and and liked by an awful lot of people. Other people also said he talked too much and was a bit too loud. (laughs) You know, so there was this mixed picture. But um, his wife said, I saw my husband reading a book on, and then there's a bank. So, but when I push on, I go on through the next 200 pages, and I find the FBI agents are going to libraries saying, did you loan a book on the subject of explosives? So now you know what she had said back in the previous interview. But when the final FBI report came out, she uh, says, I think my husband could have been responsible for this terrible thing.
0: When Um, we come back, we will wrap this up, so please stay tuned. This is ROI on KLA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM.
2: You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the Metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2.
0: This concludes our 475th show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet. And the theme song for our show is titled "Kayla's Theme, which was written and performed by Mark zap Zaptel. My name is John Keeley. We would like to thank our guests for tonight's show, Enfys McMurray, local historian and author, who talked to us about the Continental Flight 11. The history bus for today's show were Rick Sweet and Jay Swords. This is ROI, relevant or irrelevant, on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We would like to wish all our listeners to experience the great Basutu proverb, Hotso Pula Nala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night.